Welcome to the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast brought to you by Break of Day Capital. The show focuses on educating syndicators and apartment owners on how to build systems and manage their properties more efficiently to become a best-in-class operator. 100% straight talk. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky with Break of Day Capital. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Mauricio Raul, who is also a guest on episode 13. Mauricio is the founder and CEO of Premier Boutique Securities Law Firm. Uh, Mauricio specializes in Reg D exempt offerings. Mauricio is also a regular contributor to the Real Estate Guys radio show and is Robert Holmes' personal advisor. And it seems like you speak at every major real estate conference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to anymore, man. It's been a, it's been rough. You know, I got two little kids now at home, and so I'm trying to trying to cut back and, and pivot a little bit more on the digital side. But yeah, I've had I've been I think to every major conference at least once. <laughs> yeah, wow. And and anything else on the resume that I didn't I didn't I that I missed. You know, the no, I mean, you know, I've, lately I've been also, I'm lucky enough to be Ken McElroy's uh, legal advisor. So I've been putting a lot of content together for his, uh, for his website and his uh, YouTube channel, but uh, no, everything's good, man. Just, uh, just, just living day to day. It's been great. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, I, I, I love all the pertinent content you're putting out on Facebook live and YouTube. And for our listeners out there, I definitely recommend going going there and checking it out. And, and, and at the end, I'll ask you where people can find it. But uh, let's talk about one you did this week about syndications, um, how, how they're about to change. So why don't you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, every week we do a deep dive on some topic and then I kind of open it up to, to questions and AMA. But we specifically touched upon last week on the accredited investor uh, really updates to the definition or, or what's coming down the pipeline because uh, there was actually a little bit of a pivot that happened earlier this year because the SEC has, as I mentioned, it's not just proposing rules. They've actually passed rules that have expanded the definition. So it sounded like we were going in a direction where the there'd be more and more accredited investors, which is obviously great for syndicators because we had more access to that pool of, of investors. But then suddenly we were throwing a little bit of a curveball in that there started to be some rumors out there where the SEC was actually thinking of increasing the accredited investor, uh, you know, net worth requirement from the current million dollars. You know, right now you're an accredited investor if you have a million dollars in net worth, excluding your personal residence. And there was some, you know, Bloomberg article. A lot of people were picking it up that there were rumors about that going up to ten million dollars. And so that was a little bit of a shock because everybody's sort of talking about this expansion. The, the subcommittee that actually looks after theoretically the small businesses like we, we are, they were in favor of, of expanding these definitions. And then suddenly, you know, wait a minute, why are they now suddenly going talking about increasing this, you know, accredited investor thing? And then the more I thought about it, and this is kind of what we were talking about the other day, 
it, it, it made sense to me because the, the million dollar number is, is, is a relic from back in 1982, right? That's when that rule passed. And so, you know, if you adjust for inflation, that number is closer to $3 million today. And so on the one hand, it makes sense that at some point they're going to increase that number. Now, I don't know if it's 10 or five or three or two or whatever, but just, you know, indexing it for inflation, you get to about 3 million. And then it does make sense because now, you know, the rule that has passed, they're going to be allowing people to become accredited through a certification program, right? They're going to be, the SEC is going to designate certain companies that are going to be able to give an exam. And if you pass the exam, you're going to be certified as accredited and now you're going to be accredited. So you're going to have that vehicle to go get accreditation. So it kind of makes sense that, yeah, there's going to be people who were accredited. Let's say, let's say it goes up to 3 million. Well, great. If you have 2 million in net worth, you used to be accredited and now you're not, but you do have this other backdoor, this other avenue that you can go take an exam and get certified. So it does kind of make sense. Um, and then, you know, we always, you know, the conspiracy, conspiracy theorists in us, we, we, somebody was asking about it. You know, a lot of companies now are going the private route. They're going the private placement because of the expansion right now. You can kind of advertise and still be private and you don't have to go public until you get way more investors than you used to. So th there's been a lot less companies going public. And so, the, you know, the, the conspiracy theorists are this is all Wall Street lobbyists, uh, you know, trying to get that accredited investor number up so that less people, it'll be less attractive to go into the private markets and you, you can go back, uh, you know, invest in, in the stock market. You're like, oh, just take this course and you can be an accredited investor. You made it sound like it's so easy to do. Well, I don't know what it looks like, to be honest yeah. with you, because, you know, this rule passed at the end of 2020. So it's been almost about a year and a half since it passed. And they had said, look, we're going to be starting to release these certification programs and the details of them. And we've never seen them. So I've always said, I have no clue if this is like even a, do you have to take a course? I don't know. Is it a, is it a weekend course, a semester? Is it self-study? Is it just taking it? And we don't even know what that looks like. The only thing we know for sure right now is that if you're an investment advisor, so if you're technically, if you're not a, if you're not an accredited investor and you really are gun ho and you really want to go invest in a bunch of deals that are, require you to be accredited, you could go get a, a series seven or a series 65 or a series 82 license. But then you have to, like you mentioned, you've got to register that license with your state, you know, investment advisory um, under a firm, which makes it kind of, not kind of challenging, very challenging to do. So it's not really realistic for someone who isn't accredited to go that route. But I think the certification one's going to be, I believe it'll be a pretty straightforward, you know, you're going to have to study for it. It'll be a self-study course or something, but you're going to be able to go take an exam, whatever that looks like. And then if you pass it, you'll be accredited. So I think it, it makes sense to me that I don't think those two rules or proposals are, are in conflict with each other. I think they actually complement each other and make a ton of sense to me. And again, I may be completely wrong. This is just kind of a gut feeling, but to me, it makes sense that they'll increase the limits to something I don't know about 10, but you know, three or four or five, I could see that happening. It's interesting. So I just uh, finishing up my first 506C and I've got some sophisticated investors that are dying to get in the deal, um, but just can't. And then some of my long-term investors are like, I, I don't want to do any like proof of anything. Forget it. I'm out on this one. So it's it's just it's interesting, you know, between the you know the five or six B and the five or six. Yeah, C's. yeah. Of course, now you know if you want to talk about another update, I mean, you can pivot, right? You can actually do both now, which is something that we just recently were able to do just just over a year ago. Now I think it was March March fifteenth of last year that it passed. But theoretically, you could start your offering as a five or six B, deal with that, and then at some point just pivot under the same deal and start doing a five or six C. That way, you kind of get the base the best of both worlds, and it's maybe one way to get all those sophisticated investors who are dying to get in, get them in, into the deal. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's just an interesting route. We were we were thinking about it on the last deal, and then we just said, uh, uh, "We'll just 
keep it simple, you know, and just stick with the five <laughs> or six B and, and yeah, get it done. Yeah. But it is yeah. a nice tool in 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 your in your toolkit. Yeah, a hundred percent. And not too many people are aware of it or really using it. And even in our office, I mean, I've been only talking about it probably for about six months, but I think we've already done only done about seven or eight of those uh, B to C, you know, pivots. So, but uh, you know, it's, I think it, it, it your example is perfect. Like you've got investors already who have been with you for years, but they're not accredited. And now you want to flip to C, which makes a ton of sense too, because you're expanding all those, you know, so there's a lot of people get left out. So that, that pivot kind of helps in those scenarios, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you hear a lot about fund to funds of late, you know, what are some of the, the um, you know, the do's or don'ts about fund to funds these days? Yeah, they're, they're super popular. You know, it's funny, a couple, like two or three episodes ago, we had Ken McElroy in on the show and he was talking about how it's so competitive still that, you know, certainty of close was such a big deal for, for a lot of these sellers. It didn't matter that you were offering a bigger price. It was like, can you actually close this deal? And so having a fund, uh, you know, it just helps you a lot because you've already got the money in the bank and you don't have to rely on going, you know, go collecting it. So I think because of that, a lot of people are looking into doing funds and then fund to funds, of course, meaning they're not only buying apartment buildings or whatever, but they may be investing in other, in other people's syndications. Um, and look, the biggest, the biggest thing I would, you know, there's a lot of things you want to think about, but, but the main one is that you, you become an investment advisor the minute you do that. So anytime you create a fund, and you're now, the way the law sees it is you're actually advising, you're the manager of the fund. So you're advising your fund as to the purchase of securities. And that's a very subtle difference, but even, because even though the syndication might be ultimately investing in real estate, you're now just buying shares in, in somebody else's deal. It's like buying stock of, you know, Amazon stock or whatever. So now you're in the business of selling securities, which is why the investment advisory rules kick in. And the rule basically says you, you're an investment advisor, but now the question becomes, do you need to register if you do need to register, it probably be at the state level, but every single state has its own exemption. And so the first thing you want to just figure out is like, what state do you live in? Like literally, where do you reside? Where is your office located? Because that's the rules that are going to apply. And then you just go to that state and find out what the exemption is. And all states have exemptions. Uh, I don't say all, but what, everyone I've seen has an exemption. There might be one or two that don't, but, but some of them are easy. I always, I always give the example of Pennsylvania because I've got a couple of great clients that are they're there and Pennsylvania basically doesn't care. Like as long as you're not doing this, you know, 15 times a year, whatever, then, then they basically don't care. Then the, there's the middle states like the great state of Texas that says, hey, we don't, you don't need to register, but you're going to be limited to accredited investors only. So a 506C would be great. And there's a little bit of a form, uh, what's called a, 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 an ADV form, a truncated ADV form that you file. But again, pretty simple. And then all the way on the hard side, there's a couple of states that require that you either need $2 million in net worth, which really increases the, your, or shrinks the, your pool. And there's some that, that will remain uh, nameless that, that actually require that you be a, a qualified you know, individual, which means you're going to have to have $5 million in investable assets. So it's, that's basically impossible to, to qualify under that exemption. But, but just be aware of it. So just don't, don't just go in and be like, oh, I'm going to do a fund of funds. It's the same thing. Yes, for your raise, it's the same thing, 506B, 506C. But now you're in the business of investing in, in security. So you've got to worry about investment advisory rules. And just to clarify, it's, it's only the state in which you reside in that you have to be, you know, get Correct. the exemption. Yes, it's not a state where all the let's, let's let's focus on that. It's not the state where your investors are located. It's not the state where your LLC is set up. It's where are you technically advising your fund, which is going to be where you where you physically. Usually, it's where you reside. Now, I do have there are interestingly enough that there are scenarios, especially on the East Coast, where we have small states that people live on the border. So it is possible for you to live in one state and have an office in a different state. So in that, if you commute every morning to a different state 
then you would look at that other state because that's really where you're sitting and that's where you're, you're advising your fund as to the purchase of the, the underlying syndications that you're investing in. All right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I also talk, you know, talking just with a lot of sponsors about 1031s and bringing on someone that is investing. I got someone that wants to invest 800,000 and you want to have a certain threshold because there's a lot of paperwork and you, you, you bring someone in, you set up a tick, but obviously the question always is about voting rights and whatnot. And, and you hear, I've never done it before, but you talk, I, you hear people talking about minimizing voting rights and whatnot. So maybe talk about um, for, for sponsors that haven't done it out there uh, before, you know, how, you know, what can you do to minimize voting rights or is that just, it's, it's BS. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, that's one of the negatives is when you do a tick arrangement with a syndication and just, just so we don't leave anybody behind, what has to happen is that the, the investor who's, who has the 1031 is relinquishing his or her property and has to then take direct title to the new property, which is the one that you're syndicating. So you end up with the 1031 investor and then your syndication LLC as co-tenants in a, in a, in a property. Um, so at a minimum, the 1031 investor usually has veto rights, right? Like if you want to sell that property, the you know the buy the buyer the, the lender and the title company they're going to want to have everybody's signature on there so for, for whatever reason they don't want to they don't want to sell they don't want to refinance or whatever then they're going to have that veto power but the the more important thing for me is from a structural standpoint and actually from a security standpoint which is where i come in we we don't have any issues whatsoever we can do those all day long and we can bring in and we do the tick agreement and, and it's, it's it's not simple but it's, it's we can do it the limitations are on the tax side so the IRS has a specific uh, you know, regulation um, or a revenue procedure code, which lists about 15 limitations when you do one of those. And the big one, that we, I'm not going to go through all 15, but the big one is that you must distribute the profits from the venture proportionally. So if you're a 1031 investor owns 10% of the property and the syndication owns 90, 90, 10, you can't do a preferred return, right? You can't be like, well, I'm going to take a carried interest. So I'm, even though you own 10%, I'm only going to give you 8% because I've got, there's none of that. And so you can take a reasonable acquisition fee. You can take a reasonable asset management fee that's proportionate, but you've got to do, if there's $100 to split, it's got to go 90-10. And so effectively, that means that the sponsor cannot get really an override or a carried interest on that 10%. Now, maybe if it's 10%, it's not a big deal, but if you've got two or three of them and, and they own maybe 30 or 40%, you're leaving a lot, a lot of money on the table in order to facilitate the 1031. Now, maybe you need the money. It's a big raise and you need their million, $2 million. And so that's okay. But just that the, the limitations on the tax side, I, I would recommend everybody take a look at uh, the regulation. I, I've always forget the exact, I think it's 2002-20, but it's the revenue procedure code that limits you in, from the tax side of what you can and cannot do in a syndication. Yeah. I think a lot, a lot of GPs forget that piece that there, you're not making any money off of that person coming in for that 1031. It's right, it's right. on the GP side, right. uh, you know, on your, on your, on your syndicated side, but yep. um, yeah. But yeah. And, then you, and then you have risks too, because if for whatever reason that 1031 gets blown and, you know, again, we put disclaimers in there and, you know, whatever check, but you know, if, if there's ever a disagreement, that 1031 is going to, is going to sue the syndication LLC. And now all your investors are kind of tied up in this lawsuit which is never fun. So just you just need to disclose that. But there are definitely additional risks in addition to the one you mentioned, which is the voting rights. You know, they're gonna they're only gonna have you know 10% voting right in my 90-10 example, but they are gonna have veto power on sale or, or even refinance. And, and um, that's you know that could be problematic. So 
I, I want to spend a, a little bit more time on that on that veto power because that's that's huge. If you're if you want to sell the property, your investors want to sell the property, and you've got this one person holding out. How is there a, a, a workaround, or you just have to buy him off or something? Well, you'd have to buy him out. Uh, I mean, there's typically prohibitions. In fact, I think that's part of one of those 15 limitations that you can't have any partition language. So it's not like you can just, you know, go in there and, and, and partition the land and, and, and sell off 90%. And I mean, you're going to have to basically buy them out, uh, but maybe they don't want to be bought out. So uh, it's problematic. It's just one of the risks. It's just, you know, it's just a, it's a risk adjusted return at that point. You've got to make the decision whether that's worth uh, worth having that. And again, I think a lot of sponsors forget that you can't get paid, you know, get paid on that, that 10%. So I, I just want to make sure everybody goes in with open eyes, but that's, that's one of the drawbacks, you know, what are the odds of that happening? Who knows? But I, right. in fact, I've never had that issue pop up uh, in terms of having a sale and having one of the 10, because the 1031 investors also, you know, what are you, you know, what are you going to do about it? But uh, no, that's definitely a risk. I don't know that if there's any way around that. I mean, you can, you can draft language around that. You could have, you know, in, in language in the tick agreement, but a lot of times the lender will have its requirements and not allow you to do that in the tick agreement. And then title for sure is going to require, and even the seller, they're going to want, even though you may have documents that authorize, or you have a power of attorney or whatever, they're, they're ultimately going to want everybody's signature on there. And so you're going to have to get their signature. All right. Good. Good to know. A lot of good stuff. Yeah. We can, we could be talking here for hours. And, I, <laughs> and we usually do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I definitely want to have you on again because what I love about you is like, it's just, it's very easy to understand a lot of technical stuff. Um, but it's, um, you, you know, you can understand it. I'm, I'm certainly not, <laughs> you know, great on legalese. And every time I see, you know, loan docs or PPM docs and all these things, you got to read it. And, you know, I, I hate reading all of them, but, uh, but you, you definitely make it uh, very easy to understand. And I appreciate that. No, I appreciate that too. Yeah. Some of the, some of my friends tell me I'm one of the few lawyers that actually speaks English, which is a nice, uh, a nice thing to have. <laughs> so I try. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, where can listeners find out more about you and, and, and check out more of your content? Yeah. I mean, I think the best part is we, we do this weekly live. It's called the Real Estate Syndicator Live. And then we have a Facebook group, which is you can find that under mauriciorauul.com forward, forward slash FB group. Uh, and then the YouTube channel, I actually put most of those up in the YouTube channel. So if you just go to Mauricio Raul YouTube, you'll see all the past. I think we're up to like 15 episodes or something. And, and they each have one topic. And then I just always open it to AMA. And so the, the first three quarters is on the topic. And then the, the last piece is just people asking all kinds of random, uh, great random uh, legal questions. So would love to yeah. anybody to join. Free advice. Take advantage <laughs> of it. <laughs> uh, well, good. thanks so much. Um, this is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and review this podcast as it will help us grow our audience and reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website, breakofdaycapital.com, and sign up for our newsletter and or fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week. 